You are listening to RudolfSteinerAudio.com. If you are listening to the podcast of this, it is located at RudolfSteiner.Podbean.com. Please consider becoming a patron. As well, there are two publishing houses, SteinerBooks.org in America and RudolfSteinerPress.com in England, who are the sole publishers of Steiner into English and have given me permission to do these recordings. Please consider patronizing them as well. This is Lecture 5 of the Lecture Cycle by Rudolf Steiner entitled According to Matthew, the Gospel of Christ's Humanity. We must keep firmly in mind that Jesus, the son of Pandira, or Jeshu ben Pandira, who was first stoned and then hanged from a tree a century before the beginning of the Christian era, had nothing to do with the individual we know as the Jesus Matthew described, or, for that matter, with the Jesus of Luke's or any other gospel. Let me also expressly point out that we need no esoteric knowledge or clairvoyance to prove Jeshu ben Pandira's existence, since we can read about him in the Talmud. Beginning in the 2nd century AD, he was repeatedly confused with the Jesus of the Gospels. Nevertheless, Jeshu ben Pandira is not the same as the Christian Jesus. We must, however, acknowledge that a historical connection does exist, though we can confirm it today only through spiritual scientific research. To understand the full depth of this connection, we will again need to say a few words about human evolution and its leaders. When we investigate the individuals who serve as the great leaders of human evolution, we eventually encounter a series of exalted beings, usually called bodhisattvas. I use the Sanskrit term because knowledge of these is most advanced in the East. The task of these great teachers is to allow the content of spiritual worlds to flow into humankind through the mystery schools in ways suited to the level of human development in each epoch. A different bodhisattva works in each epoch and one bodhisattva always succeeds another. When discussing human evolution, I have often spoken of the two bodhisattvas relevant to today. The first became the Buddha during his incarnation as King Sudhodana's son. According to both Eastern wisdom and clairvoyant research, his successor will continue to fill the office of bodhisattva for the next 2,500 years, after which he will become the Maitreya Buddha. We must not confuse the bodhisattvas who take turns serving as the teachers and guides of human evolution with the source of their teachings. We must imagine a college of bodhisattvas, so to speak, with a living source of their teachings at its center. This source is the being we call the Christ. Everything the bodhisattvas teach us at various times in human evolution comes from the Christ. As bodhisattvas, these individuals are devoted primarily to teaching. When they attain the level of Buddha, they no longer in reincarnate physically. Again, Eastern philosophy and esoteric research agree that Gautama Buddha, who experienced his final physical incarnation as King Sudhodana's son, now descends only to the level of the etheric body. As we learned in my lectures on Luke, his next task was to enter the astral body of the Nathanic Jesus, who is not the same as the Jesus of Matthew. After his final physical incarnation in which he became Buddha, this being ceased to incarnate but continues to act as a living force, influencing our physical world from the spiritual realm. Working through living forces, formative forces, for example, is quite different from working through teachings.
a bodhisattva is a teacher until he attains Buddhahood, at which point he becomes a living and enlivening force. The Buddha acted from this new position when he intervened in, on the etheric level in the constitution of the Nathanic Jesus, as Luke describes. The Bodhisattva, who became the Buddha in the 6th century BC, was succeeded by the Bodhisattva, who will become the Maitreya Buddha. After the final incarnation of the historic Buddha, humankind matured and required different teachings. For these we turned to the next Bodhisattva and to the disciples he inspired to communicate his teachings to the world. Yesterday I mentioned that the Therapeutae and Essenes served as instruments for this Bodhisattva, conveying his teachings to earthly humanity, and that Jeshu Ben Pandira was one of the purest and loftiest members of the Essene communities. Both exoteric historical scholarship and the more esoteric teachings reveal that the Essene communities as such disappeared fairly quickly after the Christ event. Thus it is not difficult to see that the purpose of those communities was to provide a way for certain teachings to descend from spiritual realms, from the spheres of the bodhisattvas. These were the teachings needed for understanding the Christ's appearance on earth, and they appeared first and most effectively among the Therapeutae and Essenes. Jeshu ben Pandira was the individual inspired by the Bodhisattva and future Maitreya Buddha to communicate these teachings. Details about the Therapeutae and Essenes can be discovered only through spiritual scientific research. Exoteric history knows very little about them. In our spiritual scientific circle, however, we will draw freely on the mysteries of the Therapeutae and Essenes to develop a deeper understanding of Matthew and the other Gospels, and we will not hesitate to describe these mysteries in terms of spiritual science. The unique character of the communities of Therapeutae and Essenes was especially suited to developing a detailed, clairvoyant understanding of the importance of the Hebrews for the Christ event. The Essenes developed clairvoyance in order to recognize the great significance of the transformation that was introduced through Abraham, the first recipient of the potential we discussed earlier, which was then concentrated over many generations through the Hebrew bloodline. To understand how someone like Abraham could make such an important contribution to human evolution, we must keep in mind an important truth. Whenever a person is chosen to serve a specific function in human evolution, direct intervention by a divine spiritual being is required. Those of you who attended the Munich performance of The Portal of Initiation, or have read this Rosicrucian mystery drama, know that one of its most important dramatic scenes is based on this fact. The Hierophant makes Maria aware that before she can fulfill her mission, she must be influenced by a higher being. Consequently, the higher members of her body separate from the lower and are possessed by a subordinate spirit. If you allow this scene to work on your soul, you can begin to see great mysteries in human evolution. Because Abraham had been chosen for such an important role, his inner bodily organization had to be imbued with the spirit that the Atlanteans had perceived pervading and enlivening the world around them. Abraham was both the first to be, to be imbued with the spirit in this way and the first to experience a change in how human beings perceive spirit. Before this change could occur, however, a divine spiritual being had to intervene, sowing the seed in Abraham 
for the bodily structure of his descendants. As the Essenes of that time realized, the seed that allowed the Hebrew people to become the instrument of the Christ's mission was planted by a mysterious being, a sort of folk spirit, whom they could discover only by retracing their previous generations to the point when this spirit slipped into Abraham's bodily organization and began to work through the blood of the Hebrews. To understand the ultimate mystery of human evolution, we must ascend to the spirit who inspired and inaugurated the Hebrew people and implanted this potential in Abraham. According to the Essenes, those who wish to recognize this spirit in all its purity must first undergo a specific inner development that purges them of all the influences the physical world has had on the human soul since the time of Abraham. Accordingly, the spirit that lives in human beings, along with all the other spiritual beings that participate in human development, can be seen in purity only in the spiritual world. Because they dwell among humankind, the forces of the physical sensory world contaminate them. According to the Essene view, which is entirely correct on a certain level, everyone alive at that time embodied all the impurities that had entered human souls in earlier times, and these impurities clouded any view of the spirit who had planted that potential in Abraham. Consequently, for those who wished to see this spirit clearly, it was essential to purge themselves of all the influences that invaded and obscured the view of the indwelling being in the blood of Hebrew generations. Because this indwelling spirit is also clouded and sullied by inherited traits, all the Essene exercises of soul purification were intended to free the soul from generations of inherited influences and attributes. The Essenes, in particular, through clairvoyant research and perception, were able to fulfill a spiritual scientific principle that hereditary influence ceases completely only when we have ascended through 42 stages in our ancestral line. As we look back through the generations, we find fewer inherited inner impurities and none remain after we make our way back through 42 generations. Hence the Essene path of mystical training included 42 clearly defined sets of difficult exercises for inner purification. These were calculated to expunge all the impurities that had accumulated in the human soul through 42 generations. After completing those stages, Essene initiates knew that they were free of all of the influences of the sense-perceptible world, free of all the impurities that had accumulated through heredity. Ascending through these 42 stages allowed Essene initiates to feel that their innermost being, the very core of individual existence, was related to the Divine Spirit. The Essenes were personally familiar with the path that leads to a Divine Being who has not yet descended into matter. Of all those on earth at the time, only the Therapeutae and Essenes knew the truth about the potential planted in Abraham, at least in relation to heredity. They knew that we have to ascend through forty-two stages corresponding to an equivalent number of generations, to arrive at a point where a divine being entering a human line of descent has not yet descended into matter. But they also knew that the divine being sought had to follow the reverse path, passing through 42 levels in its efforts to permeate a human bloodline.
for the Godhead, becoming a human among humans also requires 42 steps. Such were the Essene teachings, especially those of Jeshu ben Pandira, who was inspired by the Bodhisattva. The Essenes taught that the being who inspired Abraham and planted a divine seed in his bodily organization needed 42 generations to descend into complete humanness. Knowing this, we also know the source that inspired the author of Matthew's Gospel, which lists 42 generations. Jeshu ben Pandira, who lived a century before the end of the 42 generations, taught the Essenes that historical events permitted them to progress only so far on their path through the 42 stages, and that further progress would depend on grace from above. But he also taught that at a certain time in the future, completion of these stages would become natural because the bloodline would extend far enough for Yahweh, the spirit of the Hebrew people, to manifest fully in the Hebrew bloodline. Jeshu ben Pandera taught that for Zarathustra, the bearer of Ahura Mazda, to incarnate in a human being, this body had to be produced over forty-two generations by the descent of the divine spirit living within. All of this identifies the Essenes as the source of the doctrine of generations that begins Matthew. If we wish to understand these facts completely, however, we must address an even more profound aspect. All the phenomena of human evolution and development must be viewed from two sides, simply because each human being is twofold. This division is not immediately apparent during our waking state of consciousness, when the four members of the human constitution are connected. At night, however, the human being is clearly a divided entity. One part consists of the physical and etheric bodies and remains in the physical world, while the second part, made up of the astral body and the capital I, leaves the other members behind. The human being is, in a sense, a composite of these two parts. When we speak of our place in the physical world, we are, in fact, referring only to our physical and etheric bodies. All human institutions in the physical world concern only these two bodies, although the other members are also involved during the day. The eye and the astral body work within the other two members while we are awake, but leave them to their own devices at night. As soon as we fall asleep, however, forces and beings from the cosmos pervade the human physical and etheric bodies, which have been abandoned by the higher members. In this way the cosmos repeatedly influences our physical and etheric bodies. This exoteric aspect of our being, the physical and etheric bodies we see in bed, is shaped and inherited over the course of forty-two generations. If we trace everything belonging to the physical being from the first generation through the forty-second, we find that none of the first generation's most important endowments remain. The forces that suffuse the physical and etheric bodies of a human individual are limited to six times seven generations. All the inherited traits in these two bodies can be found in one's ancestors, but they persist for only forty-two generations. Anything before that has disappeared. This numerical relationship has been the basis of human evolution throughout time, and we must consider it in greater detail if we hope to understand Matthew's sequence of generations. Everything related to the physical body is bound to 42 generations, since all temporal development is linked to the number 7. The Essenes also linked the number 7 with evolution that transcends physically inherited traits. They knew that after six times seven stages, 
The next seven stages, which bring the total to seven times seven of the fulfillment of the number seven, no longer involve the beings and forces active in human physical and etheric bodies. Although, according to the law of sevens, the entire evolution of the physical and etheric bodies is completed only after seven times seven or forty-nine generations, the last seven generations achieve a complete transformation and nothing remains of the first generation. Thus what the Essenes were looking for could be found only within six times seven. When the number seven is fulfilled, however, a new element must be acknowledged. Anything beyond forty-two generations deals with suprahuman rather than human existence. Seven, six times seven generations cling to the earth, but seven times seven transcend the earth and bear fruit for the spiritual world. The fruit begins to form after six times seven and ripens for the spiritual world at seven times seven. This is why Matthew wrote that the physical body intended to serve Zarathustra had to be so mature that its spiritualization or deification was imminent after forty-two generations. Instead of fully entering the forty-third generation, this body allowed itself to be occupied by a different being, the spirit of Zarathustra, incarnating as Jesus of Nazareth. Fulfilling the mystery of numbers prepared the physical and etheric bodies needed for further human evolution and provided the best possible body and blood for Zarathustra's soul in his incarnation as Jesus of Nazareth. Every human being, including the one intended to receive the Christ being, is made up of an astral body and an eye in addition to the physical and etheric bodies, which also had to be suitably prepared. Such a great event required the preparation of more than one human being. Two were needed. The physical and etheric bodies were prepared and the individual initially described by Matthew, whereas the astral body and I were prepared in Luke's Nathanic Jesus, who was a different personality for the first few years of his life. Matthew's Jesus received the appropriate physical and etheric bodies, while Luke's Jesus received the necessary astral body and vehicle for the I. How was this possible? As we saw, the forces of forty-two generations had to be prepared in specific ways to produce the physical and etheric bodies required by the Jesus described by Matthew. At the same time, an astral body and an eye had to be prepared that would later unite with the two lower members. We will hear later on how this union occurred. Before we can understand how Luke's Jesus came about, we must first consider the nature of sleep. According to lower forms of clairvoyance, the human astral body and eye float like clouds near the physical and etheric bodies of the sleeper. This is fiction. In reality, we expand into the entire cosmos when we leave our physical and etheric bodies during sleep. Our astral member derives its name from the fact that it expands into the starry or astral realm. This is the mystery of sleep. In this state, we absorb the purest forces of the cosmos and bring them with us when we return into our physical and etheric bodies. We awaken and emerge from sleep, strengthened by the cosmic forces we have absorbed. What happens when people today become clairvoyant in a higher sense? When the astral body and the eye leave the physical and etheric bodies, we usually become unconscious. This was also the case, by the way, at the time of Jesus. Clairvoyant consciousness, however, must learn to see that 
while the lower bodies are out of commission, that is, to perceive exclusively through the astral body and eye. Let me read that again. Clairvoyant consciousness, however, must learn to see while the lower bodies are out of commission, that is, to perceive exclusively through the astral body and eye. Through such perception, clairvoyant consciousness both sees and enters the world of the stars. In a process similar to the Essene ascent through a temporal sequence based on the number seven, the faculty of perceiving cosmic space also develops through a series of stages. I have often pointed out the dangers inherent in development in either of these directions. By ascending through forty-two generations, the Essenes delved into the physical and etheric bodies to discover the Godhead. This was like waking up. But instead of seeing the surrounding world, they saw their own physical and etheric bodies and forces. Normally, when awakening, we do not descend consciously into our physical and etheric bodies. At the moment of waking, our consciousness is diverted from the forces of the physical and etheric bodies toward our surroundings. But by learning to disregard what they might see in the outer world, the Essene initiates were able to submerge themselves in their own physical and etheric bodies where they perceived the mystery of six times seven generations. When we descend into our inner nature, we risk being engulfed by the forces of our desires and passions, our lowest egoistic urges. Usually we remain unaware of those forces deep in our souls, because ordinary education prevents us from discovering them. Under normal circumstances, we cannot be engulfed by them because our gaze is distracted by the appearance of the outer world as soon as we awake. Learning the mysteries underlying the entire cosmos is a similar but more powerful process. When we expand throughout the cosmos, we risk being blinded by its tremendous grandeur and a glut of confusing impressions. This is the danger we confront when, instead of becoming unconscious when we fall asleep, we remain conscious and experience the astral body and eye as the instruments of perception in the spiritual world. As we saw, the mystery of seven times seven characterizes the stages the Essenes went through to recognize inherited traits in physical and etheric bodies. A different numerical mystery, approached through movements and constellations of the stars, represents the process of perceiving the secrets of the cosmos. Six times seven stages lead to the mysteries within the human physical and etheric bodies. Similarly, twelve times seven, or eighty-four stages, lead to the spiritual mysteries of cosmic space. Having taken these twelve times seven steps, we reach a point where the grand labyrinth of spiritual cosmic forces no longer confounds us, and we acquire the inner peace needed to find our way in it. This too was part of the Essene teachings. When we become clairvoyant in this way, we expand in sleep into the phenomena based on the numerical mystery of twelve times seven. Once we complete eleven times seven stages in the astral body, we reach the boundary of cosmic mysteries, and at twelve times seven we are in the spiritual world. In the script of the stars, this fact is expressed in the number seven, which comes from the planets, and the twelve signs of the zodiac. 
Before reaching the spirit, we must go through stages that correspond to every possible location of the seven planets in the zodiac, that is, seven times twelve or seven times eleven stages. To visualize these relationships, imagine the surrounding circle of spirit in the twelve signs of the zodiac, with a human being in the center. The spirit is so extensive, however, that we will accomplish nothing if we begin by pouring ourselves out from this position in the middle. Instead, we must expand through seven turns of a spiral, each time moving through all twelve signs, thus passing a total of seven times twelve points. Imagine gradually expanding into the cosmos along a spiral path. Having circled through the twelve signs for the seventh time, we arrive in divine spirit. On this path we view the outer world through the spiritual periphery of twelve points rather than from a single central location. This is what we must do to see the reality of the world's contents. It is not enough to see everything from only one perspective. We must see it from all twelve points of view. When attempting to rise to the world of divine spirit, we must elevate the astral body and I first through eleven times seven stages. Once we accomplish twelve times seven, we have arrived in the spirit. In a scene initiation, the astral body and I had to go through twelve times seven or eleven times seven stages to reach the divine. Similarly, eleven times seven stages are also required for the development of a human eye suited to receive the descending divine spiritual being. When Luke attempts to describe the spiritual forces that prepared a suitable astral body and eye for the bearer of the Christ, he must explain that the descent of those forces descended through eleven times seven stages. Because Luke does not describe the same personality, he does not list the six times seven generations that we find in Matthew. Rather, Luke describes eleven times seven stages that descend from God himself, as Luke specifically states, to the individuality dwelling in his Jesus. In Luke you can count seventy-seven human stages in the descent of the divine power. Luke 3.23-38 Matthew's Gospel must be governed by seven times seven, because it describes the mystery of the activity and descent of the divine power that shapes and pervades the physical and etheric bodies. Similarly, Luke's Gospel must contain eleven times seven stages, because it describes the descent of the divine power that transforms the astral body and the eye. These numbers reveal the great depths from which these Gospels draw. In fact, the Gospels, according to Matthew and Luke, document the mysteries of initiation that is, of the sequence of the descent of divine spirit into a human being and the expansion of the human astral body and eye into the cosmos. Later in this series we will say more about why Luke's Gospel contains a list of generations and why, at a time when very few people were taught the mystery of Christ Jesus, it revealed this sequence of seventy-seven generations, beginning with God and Abraham and ending with Luke's Jesus of Nazareth. The end of Lecture 5, given in Bern, September 5, 1910.